Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. My guest is Juno Dawson. Juno is a best-selling novelist for young adults, a screenwriter and a journalist. She's also a school's role model for Stonewall. In 2017, she published her memoir called The Gender Games, The Problem with Men and Women from Someone Who Has Been Both, which was described as a frank, witty and powerful manifesto for a world in which everyone can be truly themselves. And Juno's chosen a picture book, Vampire, by Colin and Jackie Hawkins. All the way through, the vampires are a very cheery looking bunch, <laughs> actually. I mean... And um, the Hawkinses, the Hawkins did a lot of books. I think they were prolific during the they were, 70s they were. and 80s. I don't think, I mean, I don't think there's anything quite like it now. They're so irreverent. I mean, you've got a vampire, a Transylvanian vampire who has a penchant for high heels and old ladies. Now, at the time, did I understand that Transylvanian was, was a reference to potentially being a transvestite? No, I didn't, but I do now. That has literally just clicked in the last 30 seconds. Um, it's quite a naughty book. It's almost got that kind of end of the pier vibe, kind of like you would buy the, like a saucy purse card on Brighton Pier. It's got a, a touch of that, like there's um on one page about vampire love, there's a very, a very booksome woman. Do you know I'm being, on exactly being, the same page? Oh my yes. gosh, psychic. Yes, and she is lying in bed and she's wearing a very low-cut negligee and uh, her hair is immaculate. I'm quite surprised she's not wearing a hairnet. And she's mm. she looks as though she's got lipstick on in bed, but her, she is ready for that kiss. She is ready for that kiss, even in her sleep. Well, she, she's, in, she's in love with him. She has a framed picture of Dracula by her bed. So She does, she does. And he's lovely in the picture too, yeah. Well, let me take you back to a time when you were reading your book of choice. I don't know whether you have to close your eyes for this. Just to go back to where you were when you read it. Were you in your bedroom? Were you in some other part of the house? What's around you? Can you tell me? So I was bought this book before my memories start. So this book has always been in my house. It followed us from a very small terrace in the town of Bingley, West Yorkshire, on, on a street called Heath Street, which is where I was born. And I had a big attic bedroom. It was definitely there with us. And then it followed us to the larger house, the semi-detached house that we moved into when I was five or six years old. And there I had my own bedroom with my own bookcase. And it was just always there, along with Revolting Rhymes and Dirty Beasts, because they all look very similar. So they always sat next to each other on the shelf. So these three books always came as a trio. I was a real collector, whether it was action figures or troll dolls or, or books. I liked having them. 
But that said, I did read them. We, we didn't have a lot of money when I was a kid. So if I was bought a book, you know, I had to read it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't for display. And I remember even as a very small child being obsessed with books. And like a lot of children do originally, I just made up words. So I would pick up a book and just start telling myself a story because I'd seen adults pick up a book and somehow get a story out of it. Yeah. I remember even as a very small child, three or four years old, everybody being very excited by the fact that I could read. And I remember taking pride in people like the nursery nurse and my reception teacher being super impressed that I was able to read at that age. It is impressive. But yeah, it's, I mean, I I feel very, I guess, blessed and highly favoured that I was able to pick it up so fast because actually a lot of things like I still can barely count past 100 so l- luckily I had one thing that I could do really well and it was reading. Is it the first time you've looked at it since you were little? This book sort of came back to me I think it had sat in my childhood bedroom for bless I mean bless my mum for not throwing them away and I think when I became a primary school teacher I qualified I think in 2004 and I just realised that these books were brilliant and that we still had them. And so I took them from my mum's house down south to where I live in Brighton and started using them in my practice as a teacher. Oh, your own copies. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I use mine. And I mean, Revolting Rhymes and Dirty Beasts are still very much in print, but I remember reading them with my year sixes. How would you describe how it comes across? I don't know what you would call this genre <laughs> other than fictional nonfiction. So it's presented like a non-fiction guide to vampire life. I think presenting a fantasy world as though it were fact, I think is so fun. You know, you're not asking the reader to kind of go on a journey. You're just thinking, no, this is the tea. There are vampires. This is how to identify them. But I mean, you'd never get away with this now. It's so edgy. Um, it is really and so kind of scary as well. That was my first thought, actually, because I, I think I remembered um, my youngest having this book and me not reading it to her. Definitely. Oh, you'll like that. You've liked the others. You know, we had the Mr. Wolf and the Mr. Pig and all those books. Very familiar, lovely illustrations. So here's another by them. And then when I looked at it this time round, I thought, my goodness, this is this is actually presenting a world where nothing is safe. <laughs> Every single person is under suspicion. Every dog could possibly. The moth at the window could be a sort of spirit animal for a vampire. And then actually, I don't know what you think about this, but I thought maybe actually the message of the book, which is they are everywhere. You know, they're definitely, they're worldwide. Different ones in different countries have different characteristics. You'll recognise the British one because reads the Times and carries an umbrella. <laughs> and there's one that sleeps in their coffin with one eye open, which makes them more difficult to kill. I mean, really, really edgy stuff. And it continues like that through the book that, you know, nowhere is safe. There's a wonderful page. It's full of terrible, terrible puns. But there's a picture of a gourmet supper. So gourmet, fact fans. And the family, the, the family that um, they, they're talking about, who live in have invited friends home to tea and the faces of the children who were obviously in the middle of this vampire fest are absolutely priceless and yet the family around them of course are relaxing because it's after school and home time and then I thought actually seeing as it continues like that seeing as how it keeps saying you don't know where they are they could be anyone it could be your best friend literally one of the lines is it could be your friend at school I thought maybe maybe the message is 
therefore it doesn't matter. If you can't tell what the difference is, maybe it doesn't matter because you're just treating them like any other person. But it actually doesn't, it doesn't threaten the reader in as much as keep away from these people, they might have terrible intent. It more says, you know what, the world is full of people and you can't quite tell who they are. The scene with, because I know I've got, I've got it in front of me now. With, where yeah, she has that's, a, it. Uh, that's she's, it. She's got it. She's got a spider on her spoon. And yeah. that, because I've, ne- I've never been great with spiders. So that did freak me out. Me neither. But it was, I think, obviously as a child, I was not in any way, shape or form reading the message of inclusion and tolerance of people within your community. But constantly when I'm talking about sort of trans issues, you know, I'm always at, Pains to say, always look for the similarities before you look for the differences. And this is about a vampire family called the Von Blunts who live in Bradford. They have a very normal life. You know, they both go out to work. They go and see the grandma during the day. And and actually, it's so absurd. But I love the idea that you're just your your vampire family. They're just living in your community. They're fitting in. And I mean, it's the same because I loved when I was a kid as well. And this was my grandma's influence. We always used to watch the monsters. You know, oh, they yeah. used to show us ancient episodes of the monsters. So I was all, I was already kind of familiar with the idea that supernatural families live among us and they're not necessarily harmful. It's no. kind of just, you know, what, what do you expect? It's, they're vampires. Like it's their yeah. nature. Of course they eat people. They've got their funny little ways. But, they yeah. have their ways. But, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it is interesting, isn't it? Because looking at it for the first time, I actually thought, oh, my goodness, you know, this this could set up a whole load of things about not wanting to go to bed. But actually, there is a much more uh, sort of generous message, really, about don't worry about it. You know, they're just they're just there. And there's some lovely reworkings of a brief page of reworkings of fairy tales where the vampires are very much the heroines, which actually makes me think there's a, there's a wonderful bit in the gender games when you talk about the plots of fairy tales <gasps> and how very inappropriate they are. And of course, that is what we grew up with. I mean, there was mass indoctrination for years. Yeah. And I think the industry has got around that now and that there's, there are multiple books of kind of feminist fairy tales or kind of at least you know, kind of fairy tale heroines are given somewhat more agency. Now, I, I don't think Red Riding Hood is waiting to be rescued by a woodcutter anymore. Um, Roald Dahl, even Roald Dahl got ahead of that one with Red Riding Hood walking around in her wolf skin coat, kind of. Um, she whips a pistol from her knickers is the line <laughs> that every child of the 90s remembers. Yep. But um, I just love how far we've come because I really, I think I believe in my heart of hearts that even if I was to pitch a book like this to a publisher, they'd but you can't. You can't suggest that you might be drained of your blood. It's just, it's too much. But I remember, and I mean, and I really do. I mean, I don't know if there'll be scientists on the line saying there is no way you remember that. But I remember being in nursery and my teacher, whose name I've completely forgotten, doing that in a dark, dark wood there was a dark dark house and in a dark dark wood and it scared the living daylights out of me because you know the ghost is coming and yet I couldn't look away I loved that adrenaline of being scared and and you know maybe the the very first jump scare we give to a child is boo you know yes you know we we train kids to kind of deal with jump scares yeah I was a morbid child the more people said that's inappropriate or that's not for children the more I was like 
well, I've got to look over there because it's so taboo and it's so forbidden. Now, this this book, I mean, it's clearly a book for children. And so there wasn't really any attempt to censor that. And I remember reading it with my mum and dad and both of them finding it hysterical. They loved the puns maybe more than I did. And the idea that, you know, I think, one, is it one of the Amer- the American vampire has an extra oh, long nose? Yes, and so drinks blood out the of blood the ears. through your ear. Yeah. Yeah. We just thought that was hysterical. I mean, the page about vampires around the world now is very unpolitically correct, I will, I will say. There are some cultural stereotypes. Um, but um, in, in pop culture in general, I think Shrek was a big turning point where this idea that you could have content for children where there was also a layer for adults to enjoy it as well. And I think that's true of The Simpsons and Bob's Burgers as well, where there's genuinely something for everyone. And I think with books like Vampires and like Revolting Rhymes and Dirty Beasts, if, if as a parent you're going to share a book with a child, it's cool if there is something in there for the grown-ups as well. Yeah. And I wonder if that's why now... You know, I'm friends with a wonderful writer and illustrator called Alex T. Smith, who writes about a dog called Claude. And Claude has a sidekick called Sabobly Sock, who is a sock. Now, clearly to an adult, these two are an amazing gay couple in the in the spirit of David Furnish and Elton John. Now, no child is going to read Claude and Sabobly Sock as a gay couple. But clearly, you know, when you've got Sabobly Sock reclining with a shawl about his shoulders while he enjoys a cocktail, I mean, um, it's all there. It's all there for the adult. And I, I'm glad that there are still illustrators and authors working who are infusing children's fiction with that sense of quite dark humour. Yeah, I really wanted to get on to, and I, I think sometimes teachers still call them chapter books. Um, and I really, really wanted to do it. And my best friend when I was a kid was the kids across the road. And the kid who lived across the road was one year above me at school. And we were in a bit of a competition. Mm. And it was the 80s. And so we were children of the reading scheme. Um, and at the time, our poison was Bangers and Mash, which was two apes. <laughs> having adventures. They were called Bangers and Mash. And and you had to kind of progress up this kind of reading scheme, depending on how able to access the text you were. And we were kids. I mean, kids are really, really smart. And you knew if you were on the red books, that those books were easier than the yellow books and the green books were harder than... And so you, everybody knew, you know, we all knew we were in a competition and we knew we were being ranked and assessed kind of. And... I remember really early on seeing beyond the scheme, there were these mythical chapter books and, you know, and I just really wanted to get to them. But I think in doing so, I didn't stop to enjoy a lot of really amazing picture books. And I think it's really interesting that when you said, just pick one book, the book I chose, it was so nearly, so nearly George's Marvelous Medicine, which was a real moment. And I could have told you, exactly where I was when I read that book. But I just felt, you know, every child of the 80s is going to pick a Roald Dahl book. So I wanted (laughs) to go a different way. That is great. And were you aware then of the difference between reading at school and reading at home, even at that age, that there are different emphases and you can can use and, and, and go into the book in a very different way? Yeah, at school, it was very much about getting through it. 
In fact, sometimes if you remember my teacher in primary school, Mrs. Moss, God rest her soul, she was almost slightly irritated that I was going too fast through this scheme, like almost like, please stop, because when this scheme runs out, we don't really know what to do with you. It's almost like when you reach the top of the tree, where do you go? You know, I remember once a different teacher allowing me to go into the classroom next door for older children to pick from the chapter book called The Free Readers as a phrase. What does that even mean? I, I became a free reader. <laughs> um, that's a loaded term, isn't it? And so I, I remember kneeling down in front of this bookshelf in the classroom above mine and just being like, this is so weird. You know, it's like there's nobody telling me which book I have to read. And, and I remember reading blurbs and looking at covers and I think I ended up reading Gobelino, The Witch's Cat. That was how I first came across Gobelino. My nine-year-old grandson, I've got quite a few of them, but he's really obsessed with blurbs. You know, that to him is the real way into a book, which as a writer is slightly scary. <laughs> it is, because you often have... <laughs> it, you just, often, it just shows you that... You often yeah. have a nice say over the blurb, <laughs> which, is, which is quite worrying. Although I do now, and now I'm quite particular. That, that is one of the things that is a bit of a deal-breaker for me. If, if, if I don't like the text on a blurb, I will politely suggest changes. Were you a family of readers? Was it encouraged or was it tolerated? A little bit of both. So, and I think, I think this is so important and it's something that I talk about a lot as both an author, a campaigner for reading. And then prior to that, I was a primary school teacher as well, which is the importance of having books in the house. And I think it's fair to say neither of my parents were big readers but there were always books in the house. Books were really normalised. Both my grandmothers were really big readers. So when I went round to their houses, there was always piles of books. And importantly, both of my grandmas were massive library users. So both of my grandmas went to Bingley Library. It still has a library, thankfully, a much smaller library than the old one, but it still has a public library. That's good. And I remember really, really young, my grandma Breen sorting me out with a library card. And I was shook. The idea that you could just get six books for free. I was like, this was the most amazing thing, you know, that and I remember that, you know, that that's sort of like the plastic coating they put on library books, which I loved, and the fact they were often hardbacks as well was exciting. And so yeah, reading was encouraged and really normalized by the adults in my life. Yeah, I had exactly the same thing. I moved quite a lot as a kid because my dad was in the army. And the first thing we did wherever we were was to go to whatever the library was. Sometimes it was run by the NAFI or something called the TOC H. I'm still not quite sure what that is. But there were always, as you say, ample books and nobody saying you can't take that one, which which actually I still find quite thrilling. Yeah. <laughs> I still quite like the idea of can choose. Do you think when you read as a child, were you putting yourself in the book or were you trying to find a different world? I don't know if I'm a crazy person or if this is everyone's experience of reading, but I've always been a huge film and TV fan. You know, even as a small child, I loved, loved, loved things like Round the Twist and Disney films. And so I always saw a book as a film that you watch in your head. And that was just how I've always done it, you know, which interestingly was maybe why as a child I preferred books in the third person. I wasn't being asked to insert myself into the character. I was being presented with a character. Jane is going to the shop. 
cool in my head. I can imagine Jane. I can imagine the shop. But I don't have to pretend to be Jane. And so that was kind of the way I always preferred my novels as a kid. And, you know, I loved deciding what the characters look like and imagining the characters. And even now, I, I really love authors like Philip Pullman, who is such a good storyteller. And, you know, he just presents you this world. And it's very, very clear for me to be able to imagine it. I'm not being asked to do a lot of abstract thinking, kind of. Do you write like that as well, then? Do you see it all really clearly when you're writing? Yeah. I mean, that has been perhaps the thing I've heard more than any other feedback from readers which is it's very visual and of course this really helps when I take meetings about film and tv adaptations which is we could see this as a film and I'm like well that's because I kind of wrote it as a a film that you could watch in your head like I've seen it in my head and I've somehow got to get a facsimile of it into your head and and that's kind of the way I see my writing which is I want the version in your head to look as much as my version as possible and that's why I try to be not didactic, but as descriptive as possible so that we're on the same page, kind of. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. My memories of reading as a small child were nearly all Roald Dahl adjacent. Revolting Rhymes and Dirty Beasts. I remember the first book that made me cry was Matilda. The scene where, spoilers, where Miss Honey adopts Matilda made me cry because nobody had ever shown Matilda kindness. Um, I love the witches. You know, that first section where they run you through. It's a very strange book, plot-wise, is the witches. It's odd. It doesn't kind of... There's not much of a narrative until about halfway through the book. But the initial kind of description of the witches and the things they can do, I found really scary. And so I think like a lot of kids in the 80s, Roald Dahl, they were my first chapter books. And then when I was 10 years old in like 1991 or 1992, there was a big change for me. And that was the introduction of a series called Point Horror, which were trashy, sort of spooky teen, very American. I've always really loved anything Americana. Like, I much preferred things like Beverly Hills 90210 to things like Grange Hill, which just felt (laughs) very sort of close to home, you know. Although I did like Biker Grove. I thought Biker Grove was great. 
And so I loved the American gloss of Point Horrors. And, and by that point, me and my friends, you know, were really on a mission to watch 18 certificate films. But Point Horrors were fine. You know, they, they were totally fine for an 11 year old to read kind of. And so from around nine, 10 years old, my reading became incredibly limited. And I would only read Point Horrors. Doctor Who paperbacks and Nancy Drew case files, which was like the 90s reboot of the Nancy Drew mysteries. And actually, maybe a bit younger, when I was about 13, 14 years old, that's when I did that thing that I think a lot of us did in the 90s because there wasn't really YA fiction. I went straight to Stephen King, which (laughs) nearly all my friends did, Terry Pratchett and Stephen King. So there was this lurch from children's fiction into very, very adult stuff. And I remember, I think I was 11... Oh my gosh, no, it was even younger. I was 11 when I read my first James Herbert. The fact I've had therapy as an adult shouldn't have been a surprise, really, should it? I read a lot of true life crimes in my sort of very early teens. Things about the Boston Strangler and things extraordinary. At that point, there became a disparity between the books that I was reading for fun and the books that I was reading at school. And during that time, I discovered two books that I've now slightly forgotten. But if you were a child of the 90s, you'd have definitely enjoyed Room 13 by Robert Swindells, which is about vampires in Whitby. (laughs) Amazing. I'd love to adapt that. And the other one was Across the Barricades by Joan Lingard, which was about the troubles in Northern Ireland. And it's kind of like a retelling of the Romeo and Juliet story about, I think it's a Catholic girl and a Protestant boy called Kevin and Sadie. And that was a big thing. And because it was a love story, but, you know, it also had the backdrop of terrorism and the IRA. It appealed to everyone in the class. And I remember whoever we were, we so looked forward to English. But then when I got to high school, oh, it got dry. It was so dry. And I always say this, and I feel strangely guilty about it now, which is I dropped English. As soon as as I was allowed to drop English, I did. And I think that was because... There were issues with some of the text selections at high school. And I remember, you know, Cider, I mean, bless, but Cider with Rosie. No, no. (laughs) I mean, like everyone, we did Kill a Mockingbird in year nine, which is Stone Cold Banger. You know, no one... I would challenge anybody to find fault with To Kill a Mockingbird. but It's a deal breaker, isn't it? You've got to like it. I just don't think I've ever met anybody who didn't. But other than that, I didn't like the way English was taught. You know, we didn't get to do a lot of creative writing, very little drama. Just a lot of the real sense that we've got to get through this book because this book will be on your exam. So we've just, you're not here to enjoy it. You've got to get through it and you've got to understand it because you're going to be tested at GCSE level on this text. So as soon as it was time to pick my A-level options, I couldn't get away fast enough, which is a shame because actually the A-level texts actually sound way more immersive because it was Paradise Lost and Handmaid's Tale, which are books that I've read since and and greatly loved. But yeah, it was a real shame that my high school English was not the one for me. I think, and I've said this a gazillion times, that you get children reading and they're readers for life. That's where you have this critical moment to turn a child into a reader and prescribing books. It's, I just, I don't think that's the way it's going to be. And, you know, the, the, this conversation will always crop up around, oh, do comic books count as reading? <laughs> do video games count as reading? And of course they do. 
You know, of yeah. course, when I was a teacher, I saw the penny drop in some children that, oh, no, if I'm going to play computer games, I'm going to have to read. <laughs> like all of a sudden seeing that need, because previously it's always been, my gosh, you have to be able to read. You know, everyone has to be able to read. But for, for some children, they hadn't seen their reason for reading. And so I think I'm, I'm always really mindful around snobbery. And so we, even though, you know, I wish the industry would support small authors in the way that they got behind the massive juggernauts. I'm really not here for any sort of snobbery around children's reading. Whether it's vampires or whether it's sort of more graphic young adult novels or whether it's horror films, we will never understand what it's like to be a nine-year-old with a smartphone. that That's not an experience we can go back and have without a TARDIS. And so you see this with things going viral. At the moment, there's a re- truly atrocious Australian horror film, something about the disappearance of Michelle or something, that's gone massively viral on TikTok. And this is because kids have started telling each other, you need to watch this film because it's the scariest film ever. <laughs> It's not. It's absolutely not. But it was out there and it kind of became kind of contraband. And so I think whether it was me at 11 years old reading Forever by Judy Bloom, yeah. or whether it's a horror film, children pick it up. They're sponges. And as soon as you say you, you can't do that or you shouldn't do that, then it, it just it takes on a life of its own. And I think that's the true kind of, you know, the kind of word of mouth that I've always kind of wanted with my novels, not which is you know, this this book is shocking for the sake of being shocking, but, you know, you need to track down this book because it's telling you the truth and it's telling you a kind of truth that some teacher-sanctioned books might not be telling you, like no book on Michael Gove's approved reading list for the ages <laughs> is going to feature Lexi Volkov being addicted to heroin. And yet, when I was researching that novel... Every single person in recovery that I spoke to traced their addictions back to being 12 or 13 and stealing alcohol or, you know, trying painkillers for the first time. And I realised there are teenage girls who are abusing substances and I'm in a position to be able to tell that story. So maybe I should kind of. There have been times where, you know, I've been very lucky in that, you know, I'm a role model for Stonewall and, and I've been able to lobby certain politicians as well. But I think going forward, I I remember that I'm a writer first and that actually my work, whether it's fictional, whether it's non-fictional, increasingly screenwriting, you know, I'm not coming with an agenda, but, you know, I can present the world as I wish it was, you know, a kinder, sort of more inclusive place, because I think that that is what will change the world. An author friend of mine, Alice Osman, she's adapting her graphic novels for Netflix at the moment. And these graphic novels are beloved by teenagers called Heartstopper. And it shows the world as I think it could be, which is a very diverse cast of 16 or 17 year olds. There are LGBTQ characters at its heart. It's a very straightforward love story about two schoolboys at an all boys school. And I think it's going to be massive on Netflix. And actually, Alice doesn't access social media an awful lot. And so I'm just, I think, taking a step back and I'm going to let my books kind of do do the work. And it's also slightly slightly changing the message as well. 
which is about I don't want to get into the conversations that I think a lot of people on social media want to have. I think sometimes, you know, Jordan Peele described it in Get Out, his movie Get Out, as the sunken place, which is the place that the majority want to keep minority groups. And I, I truly believe there are people who want to keep trans people in this very particular holding pattern that I like to call define a woman or define a man. And I've realised, oh my gosh, this conversation is quicksand. And it's, it's, we're just going to go around and you fall through one layer of quicksand and you find yourself in the same quicksand. So I'm actually very mindful now of when, when I talk around trans issues, I just talk about the waiting lists in the, in, that are, we're, we're in an emergency I, I don't think any person should be waiting four years to see a specialist. I think they're going to tackle it. I think things will change. But right now, you know, so I came out when I was 32. You know, I wouldn't have been seen until I was 36 now. And I think that's really mad. You know, I got, I got in just ahead of the, the rush kind of. And, and, you know, I think I was on about a 10 month wait list. And that felt, and, you know, you, you've read Gender Games, that, that 10 month wait felt really excruciating and you know I cannot imagine what that would have been like if I'd have been staring down the barrel of a four-year wait list. I always think that negative reactions come from either two places broadly it's either jealousy or fear I think Mm. and weirdly enough I think for people who can't cope I think it's both because there's fear of other whatever that means to them but there's also I think massive jealousy in somebody being what they want. I mean, that's, that's, that's the place of safety for most of us, isn't it? To be at least within your four walls, truthful. Yeah, I think, I think, you are, I think you're right on both counts. I think it's, it's very human nature, you know, growing up in a place as segregated as Bradford. I grew up with the Pakistani community being blamed for every woe that Bradford experienced. And, you know, it was only when as a teenager, I kind of grew a mind of my own. I started to question some of these myths, like, of course, all the evil in the world doesn't come from an oppressed minority group living in Bradford. Like, what were you thinking, kind of? And I think it's true now. I think it's so much easier to blame. I mean, I think it's like the trans community is not 0.2% of the, the community. You know, it's so much easier to blame this nebulous fear on on trans people than it is to properly look at austerity or capitalism or toxic masculinity or the patriarchy or any of these things which are very abstract and very difficult to pin down. And I think with jealousy, I, I don't you know think it's it's anything you know as straightforward as oh my gosh, Juno Dawson has such lovely hair or whatever. But I think there is something Although about you do. the freedom. Thank, thank you. There's something about, I think, the freedom of being queer, which is, you know, anybody who comes out as lesbian, gay, bisexual or trans is kind of sticking two fingers up at the order of things. You know, you, this is not the way you are meant to be. This is not the way you are assumed to be. And once you fully embrace that, you can just do what you want. And I look at people like Lil Nas X or Ollie Alexander and just think there is such a joyous anarchy about them. And I think, you know, I I look at some of my friends who are cisgender and straight and their lives have been very ordered. And I think, whereas, you know, the queer 
by definition almost, it's to be different. It's to be other. And, and I think there is something really freeing about that. And maybe that's part of the problem. We've smashed convention, kind of. Yeah, who would not envy that? And also, what you are is you. <laughs> I mean, that's just what you are. And it's a jolly good you. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. My guest was Juno Dawson. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton. And Twice Upon a Time is a hat trick podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 